As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It is Henry Zamoda and my good friend Danny Abdeljabar. What's up, brother? Chill, man. As per usual. How about yourself? All right, enough of the small chat. We <laughs> Jesus get the Christ. right here. <laughs> we have about 20 pages of notes to cover right here. And yeah, seriously. <laughs> it is late already. It is 9.35 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Tuesday, January 23rd, set to be released tomorrow, the 24th. And I'm already wasting enough time with this useless information. But the important thing is, um, today we are talking about Hezbollah. And um, right now, pretty much, you know, the axis of resistance, you know, the Houthis, the Hezbollah, pretty much the Shia Crescent, uh, is in the news right now. There, There's a chance there could be a regional war, just given the events going on in, in, in Gaza right now. With uh, in addition with the you know the Houthis firing uh, rockets and missiles uh, within shipping lanes, um, and then within you know the the constant tension between Hezbollah and Israel up in the north, there seems like there could be a war that could break out at any moment. God forbid that one does does not, or at least a larger scale war does not break out. And um, you know we figured we'd talk about Hezbollah because. You know, really, they're the largest non-state military force in the world. So we're going to talk about where they came from, you know, how this group emerged, and um, essentially outline the big factors of how they, you know, came to be. Because, you know, I'm sure they're going to be in the news over the next couple of months. Um, Hopefully it's not in the news because Hezbollah and the Israelis go for a full-scale war. But um, just to give kind of a breakdown, a, a too long, or what's you what supposed to say, too long, didn't read? Well, in this case, it would be too long, didn't listen. <laughs> too but long, yeah. okay, too long. So, uh, summary. So, Hezbollah, they emerged as an organization in the mid-1980s by a group of young Shia. And, um, you know, there were three primary factors that created the conditions for Hezbollah to exist. The first one being the discrimination of, of Shia and the Levant. Two is the Iranian Revolution that takes that takes place in 1979, and then the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 1982. Okay, podcast over. <laughs> you can go home now. <laughs> you can go home. All right, but like that's that's not our style. Let's let's maybe throw it way 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 back to the ancient history stuff because I think it's it's kind of important to know about. And I know you did a bunch of research on it anyway, so let's, yeah. let's talk so about it. Yeah, so of course, we're going to add context and, and, and give sort of a timeline, but we're, we're going to jump from, from event to event. So hopefully this episode doesn't come off too scattered 
However, a good place to start is really just thousands of years ago, like every every single event. Um, it's important to understand Lebanese history or, or essentially the geopolitics of that area because Lebanon's a very important place. It's it's uh, where east and west meet essentially, but you know Lebanon has a very ancient history. It's um, you know the, the earliest inhabitants of Lebanon were likely the Phoenicians three and five thousand years ago, around three thousand BCE. The Phoenicians settled and and uh, you know created settlements in 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 what is now Lebanon, and uh, you know the the. The Phoenicians are an ancient Semitic-speaking seafaring people who who um, who colonized the the coastal areas of the Mediterranean, primarily the regions of now Lebanon, western Syria, and northern Israel. They, um, you know, they're the 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 civilization that that created or established the cities of Tyre and Sidon, which are two of the oldest cities in the world that are continuously inhabited. And over time. Uh, Various civilizations, including the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the, the Byzantines, or the Eastern Romans, controlled that region until it was conquered by the Arab Muslim armies, led by Caliph Umar, where it became part of the Arab Empire. Um, you know, it then becomes a very a major hotspot for the Crusades. It was broken up into different Crusader states until it was reconquered by Muslims. By the by, the Mamluk Sultanate um, out of Egypt for a couple hundred years, the uh, the Mamluks were a military cast of slave soldiers that um, that conquered you know much of Egypt and the Levant. Um, but after the Mamluks, the the Ottomans take control of the region, and that's really where the modern history starts. The Ottomans they rule over Lebanon until they collapse after World War One, and after World War One. The League of Nations gave Lebanon and Syria to France to administer. They were given a mandate over over um, over the region um, due to dealings with the British and Sykes-Picot. But in the 1920s, uh, France partitioned sizable portions of Syria to establish a greater a greater Lebanon, and this move effectively prevented Arab nationalists, predominantly Sunnis, in the coastal cities from creating an independent state in Damascus. And, you know, the reason why Damascus is so important in, in, um, in Arab history is because it was the capital of the Umayyad dynasty, which was the first major Arab Muslim state after the death of, Pro- of the Prophet Muhammad. So um, Lebanon, given that it has this, this ancient history, it has this ancient history or ancient community of, of Christians the Marianite Christians, who were the followers of St. Marin. And Marianite communities were established, you know, in the 4th or 5th century. I'm not sure exactly when. Um, but the Marianites, they traditionally aligned with the French. So at the beginning of World War II, Lebanon was still under French control. Um, in June 1940, France falls to the Germans and shortly afterward, Lebanon come, come, um, comes under control of, of Vichy France. The Vichy France being uh, the, the uh, government that collaborates with um, with Nazi Germany during the war. Um, that doesn't really last too long. They're pushed out by the Allies just a year later. 
and they established a free French administration in Lebanon. However, France not really having the resources during the war to govern Lebanon anymore, they grant Lebanon its independence in 1943. Now, the system that they set up before they left was purposely intended to keep the pro-French Marianites in power. So Lebanon, it's, it's um, founded under this national pact, which is this unwritten understanding between Sunni Muslims and Marianite Christians. This political, political system that emerges from this national pact, it's, it's formalized into a system of sectarian communities. So each of the countries recognized sects were accorded political privileges and appointments roughly proportionate to the size of their of their populations or communities. Thus the the Marianites, who at the time were considered the plurality, were given a presidency. The second largest community being Sunnis was given the prime minister position. And then there was a Shia community, the third largest, they held um they held speakership of the of of the parliament which was a relatively weak position, you know, versus the, the executive branch and the premiership. And then also not to make it more complicated, but there's a Druze Drew, community as well who, who are a minority in pretty much every country in the Levant. But let's just keep this simple and concentrate on the big, on the major three. The Druze, you know, throughout their history, they had a lot of conflict with the Marianites, but they, during this time period, they, they ally themselves more with them. So, the Shia community were by far the poorest of Lebanon. So a small community of Shia lived in and around Beirut, but the overwhelmingly the overwhelming mass lived in southern Lebanon and also in the northern Bekaa Valley, which is east of Beirut. Now in the Middle East, there is a history, in certain areas in the Middle East especially, there is a history of discrimination against, against Shia in predominantly Sunni countries. There is also a, a history of discrimination against Sunni in predominantly Shia countries if you look at modern-day Iraq. But during the time of the Ottoman Empire, the Shia were seen as a fifth column who were loyal to the Persians. They were predominantly Shia. That's why you see it all you see all these like Ottoman governments and all the main administrators were all Sunni. And Shia were typically, you know, the poor in the backwater. That's what you see saw in Iraq, that's what you saw in Lebanon. That's what you saw in Syria as well, where but in Syria they were they were the they were the minority. But not to leave the point the shia regions were poor and they were isolated from from uh, beirut's economic and social advantages and um really the the problem was they just they grossly over represented they, they were overrepresented within lebanon's underclass almost 85 percent of lebanon lebanon's shiites were were living on off uh subsidence crops like um like tobacco and um the south in Lebanon just received no 
economic development assistance from from uh, the national government. Meanwhile, the Sunnis in the Marianite communities were benefiting from a network of Western capital. Post-World War II, there was a lot of foreign investment in Lebanon. Um, it was called the the uh, the Paris of the Middle East. I'm sure you've heard that term before yeah. to describe Beirut. Totally. A lot of money went into it. So um, between, um, and just to pull this back, so one of the problems, and, and this is kind of, this, this is similar to what you see in, in Gaza and the West Bank with the Shia. The Shia had a huge population boom starting in the 1950s. So between 1956 and 1975, the Shiites tripled in size from 250,000 to 750,000 people. And they became about 30% of the population of Lebanon. Additionally, following a minor civil war in 1958, minor compared to the later civil wars that take place in the 70s and 80s, um, you know, it, this, this civil this conflict results in the disposal of their of their Marianite Christian president. The um, in response to kind of ease ethnic or sectarian tensions, the Lebanese government implemented a program called, and I can't really pronounce this. I think I'm saying it right. Shihahabism. Yeah. Shihahabism. Shihahabism. Mm-hmm. So basically it was this nationwide development program created to reduce the friction between different sectarian communities. And um, it was sort of like the great migration of black um, sharecroppers to major cities. To, to major urban cities. That's what it's comparable to. So all these rural folk uh, with you know who were illiterate for the most part, they moved into Beirut, which is you know the main the main um, metropolitan area in Lebanon. Um, so there's this massive mi- migration and the majority of these migrants they settle in this area called the ring. It's called um, the misery belt yeah. is what they called it. So basically, Crazy. it was just this ring around the suburbs that was just slums. And uh, this area, these, these slums become the, uh, you know, the key Hezbollah support center. So this is the, the socioeconomic conditions that lead to Hezbollah. Uh, no, but these are kind of, this is kind of the backdrop of, 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 um, where these militant Shia groups emerge from um, has to do with you know, the sectarian politics of, of Lebanon itself. And then, of course, the, um, the sectarian nepotism where the Shias were kind of left to be the losers. For sure. And, and, and I think it's, it's funny because we just went through like thousands of years of history in like, I don't know, 10 minutes. And there's so many things that we could talk about, but I, I think what was important to get out of that is just kind of like the the makeup of the people in Lebanon by the time we get to the the second big factor, which is you know the the Iranian Revolution. Um, so a lot of people today would pretty accurately describe Hezbollah as a you know proxy for Iran, but I guess the question that we're like trying to set out to answer today is like how did that come about? Because if, if you look at a map, Iran and Lebanon, they're not like direct neighbors, right? They're not particularly far, but they're also not close. 
They're in that same region, but they're separated by like a thousand miles. And there's like two to three countries in between them, depending on the route that you travel, you know? So, you know, something, something has to be going on there. That's obviously different than just direct neighborship. And some people might, might point out correctly that, you know, Hezbollah and Iran share the same religious ideology, which is Shia Islam. That's kind of not enough of a, a connection by itself to establish this kind of a relationship because not every Shia country or group is as close an ally with Iran as, as Hezbollah just because they're also Shia. I think to understand why Hezbollah and Iran are so closely linked, we, we can pretty much look at one guy, and that's Ayatollah Rahola Musavi Khomeini, or Ayatollah Khomeini, and he's the founder of the Islamic Republic of Iran and, and the leader of the Iranian Revolution. He's pretty famous, uh, pretty famous historical figure, and, and I think a lot of people who listen to the show will probably know who he is. Um, but let's give some background context on this guy, just kind of understand like how is it that that you know leader of Iran comes and gets mixed up with with folks in Lebanon and how that all works together. Because I think that context is important to understand the connection to Lebanon and, and Hezbollah's creation as what we understand as a proxy for Iran today. So. Ayatollah Khomeini, he was born in 1902 in Khomein, Iran, which gets really confusing. Uh, he, as I, like, I, like I mentioned before, he's the founder of the modern Islamic Republic of Iran, and, and uh, he's their first supreme leader. He's also not to be confused with Ali Khamenei, who's the second and current supreme leader of Iran. There's two of them, super similar names, different guys. Um, but he was apparently a descendant of the prophet Muhammad, and he engaged in religious studies very early on in life, picked up a whole lot of ideas and perspectives in this period of life, specifically like his ideas on like who was an oppressor, in this case, the West and Israel, and uh, who were the oppressed uh, Iran and Palestine and Lebanon and so on and so forth. But on this topic, he, he basically blamed the oppression on not strictly adhering to Islam and, and that that was the root cause of the issue. And, and he, he developed a very strong anti-secular ideology. And this anti-secular stance would get him in trouble later on and become the main influence in the creation of both the Islamic Republic of Iran, but also Hezbollah in Lebanon. So by the 1930s, Khomeini, he became a prominent authority in Islamic law at the, uh, I mean, I'm going to butcher these words, by the way, so please forgive me in advance. Fazia school in Qom in Iran and and at, at this school he, he gave a bunch of lectures which were critical of the Shah and of the religious establishment um, he also wrote his first philosophical and theological piece called uh, the revelation of secrets which was basically all about like preserving Iran's Islamic identity and, and blaming the western influence on Iran's decline and loss of religiousness and this was kind of the start of Khomeini's uh, uh, activism his ideology centered around the the idea of like creating an Islamic government that was led by a council of mullahs, which are basically uh, Muslims who studied you know Islamic law. So these mullahs would would then ideally elect a leader who also respected Islamic law, and and Khomeini advocated for a strong centralized state with with both a capable military force so that they can you know enforce those Islamic laws. And by the late 1950s, he started to become record. Hang on. You're not cool. 
So by the late 1950s, no, sorry, this is like background noise, cars and shit. Um, by the late 1950s, he was recognized as an influential cleric, um, though he was still largely non-political until about 1963 when he started to tie in his interpretations of Islam with politics. In 1963, uh, the Shah of Iran introduced this white revolution, quote-unquote. And I'm going to skip over a lot about it because we honestly don't have time. Um, but it was basically a series of modernizing reforms, including the creation of literacy corps and you know a bunch of land redistribution. And, and these reforms were meant to be bloodless, but it faced a whole lot of criticism for their like basically autocratic implementation and, and, and almost no popular support. Um, so Iran's clergy along with Khomeini as a vocal leader of said clergy, opposed a lot of these changes, and they viewed them as neglectful of Iranian citizens and their needs. But Khomeini ran his mouth a bit too much, and he got in trouble after that. So in 1963, in June, Khomeini de- delivered a sermon where he uh, harshly criticized the Shah, let's, let's say, uh, and he compared him to like a parasite, uh, exploiting like Iran and its people among other choice words that he had for him. But after this, Khomeini got arrested, and his arrest triggered a bunch of protests against the Shah's government during the Shiite holiday of Ashura. So although he got released in August of 1963, Khomeini got rearrested later that October, only to be re-released again the year later in May of 1964. So by this time, you know, he had become a widely known you know, figure in Iran for his opposition to the Shah and his close ties with the West and particularly criticizing an arms deal that the Shah had with the United States. And throughout all of these arrests, Khomeini became regarded as like a spiritual leader, if you will, for Muslims who were increasingly just resentful of Western influence in Muslim politics. And so to try and curb that influence that Khomeini was gaining, the Iranian government exiled Khomeini. Uh, and he briefly stayed in Turkey for a bit before he ended up in Najaf in Iraq, which is which is a um, it's like a holy Shiite city. And uh, despite the Shah's efforts to like try to shut him up, Khomeini's influence basically grew even faster during his exile in Najaf. And this is where Khomeini's ideas start to evolve. He starts to advocate for government power to be held by a you know like this body of Muslim scholars. And he also introduced a very important concept, which I will also butcher the word. <laughs> so apologies in advance. It's velayet e faqi. That's my best pronunciation in Arabic, which it basically just means rule by like a, a, a leading jurisprudent or like a, a person studied in, in Muslim law. And uh, this concept is is super, super important for this for the founding of the Islamic Republic of Iran and more specifically uh, important to its relation to Hezbollah, but a bit more on that later. So Khomeini enacted his opposition to the Shah's government through what were called fatwas. These were basically like unofficial Supreme Court decisions or interpretations made, but they were made by an Islamic legal scholar on questions about Islamic law. And these fatwas uh, concerned the Shah's policies and, and close ties with the West, including the use of the Savak intelligence group for um, espionage and for torture. Uh, he criticizes Shah's practice of making political parties illegal, except, of course, for his own, which is really ironic when you look back at it because there's a long list of banned political parties in Khomeini's Iran today, 
And this was one of the biggest points that he was hitting the shot about. You know, I mean, it's kind of like calling the pot, kettle calling the pot black here. Um, but speaking of banning, though, uh, some of Khomeini's fatwas banned Muslims from joining the Shah's party uh, because they viewed it as a threat to Islam, which was a major issue for the Shah's regime because Khomeini drove a pretty big religious wedge between the Iranians and the government. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance Podcast. Every day we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. Sorry, I, this guy's super interesting. We could have probably did a whole episode on Komeni by himself, but I'll bring it back. Um, all right, so how do, how do we get back to, to Hezbollah from here, or Lebanon generally? So d- while he was in Iraq, he formed these pretty significant connections with Lebanese Shia communities uh, who were in Iraq at the same time, which included a whole lot of students that were studying Sharia there. And he eventually gets connected to Imam Musa al-Sadr, who at the time was regarded as an important political and spiritual leader in the Shia Lebanese community. So that connection only grew stronger when al-Sadr's niece marries Khomeini's youngest son. And Khomeini got so close to al-Sadr that he once said about him that I can't, uh, I can say that I nearly raised him, is a quote that he once said about him. Al-Sadr's trusted assistant, his name is Mustafa Shamran, he also became super close to Khomeini and later helped to found the Revolutionary Guards after the Islamic Revolution. Um, so because of these close connections, al-Sadr advocated for Khomeini in Lebanon, which had a big influence over other Lebanese Shia in Lebanon. And as time grew on, um, South Lebanon become, became kind of a hub for refugees of a bunch of different Iranian dissidents who opposed the Shah. And, you know, that 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 relationship between Khomeini and al-Sadr played a crucial role in, in Khomeini's ability to what he would consider exporting his revolutionary idea, his ideologies to, to Lebanon um, after eventually becoming the supreme leader 
uh, in the country that he set up. But that relationship, though, even though it was cut short by a very mysterious disappearance, which we'll want to talk about later, uh, it, it left a really big and lasting impact on on the Lebanese Shia with you know the widespread acceptance of Khomeini's ideology there. Um, but I, I think probably now would be a good time to talk about the actual revolution itself. And I know we're going to speed through a lot of the Iranian revolution so we can get to the relevant, like the, the relevant parts, um, for the formation of Hezbollah. So Henry, why don't, why don't you, um, why don't you give us a rundown on like what's important there? Yeah. So to keep this brief, the Islamic revolution, Iran, it started January 6th, 1978, when there was, um, a derogatory article about Khomeini in some Persian newspaper, and it leads to, you know, violent outburst. And um, this incident sets off this nationwide revolt against the Shah's regime, the Shah. And um, during this period, the Shah's government, uh, you know, they were hoping to reduce Khomeini's influence. They uh, put pressure on Iraq to expel him out of the Middle East. Uh, he's actually exiled to France for a bit. But from there, Khomeini continued, and, and Iraq held on to him as kind of a secret weapon, ends up backfiring against them um, during the Iran-Iraq war. But not to get too far down that rabbit hole, from from there, Khomeini continued to, um, you know, he went on his campaign against the Shah. Uh, the revolts eventually grow too strong. The Shah ends up leaving. He flees to in January 16th, 1979, um, ends up in New York for cancer care leads off, kicks off uh, a whole another can of worms, the, the Iranian hostage crisis. Um, again, not to diverge too much off topic, but uh, Khomeini returned to Tehran's. He returns in February of 1979, establishes his, his Islamic government, and then you know there was a referendum that overwhelmingly supported the establishment of an Islamic regime. And the new constitution, um, you know, going back to what you were saying uh, about jurisprudence, it, it recognizes Khomeini as this grand ayatollah leading by jurisprudence. Right. That's that's Khomeini's Veliat al-Faqih principle that, that finally comes to fruition here. So um, it establishes his authority claiming to be uh, basically it means that he's Allah's representative on earth. So this concept not only applied to Iranians, because this is like a revolution, kind of like, like, you know, a, a world revolutionary movement, like the Soviet union or, you know, like Trotsky or something. Right. But it's got a religious where, pin um, to it. So it kind of feels like, like what as the, if the Pope had created like a Catholic, you know, dynasty or something like that again. Yeah. So it so it the point is it doesn't apply to Iranians it applies to all Shia Muslims. So, you know, this is this is what kind of to this day impacts a lot of the Shia resistance movements like Hezbollah. Um and then Khomeini is pretty much a, an easy pick to be the you know, the the Lebanese savior or the for for Shia at the very least their spiritual leader basically yeah yeah so as we were saying earlier the majority of shia were impoverished uneducated and extremely religious so it's kind of a triple threat combo and uh, 
Khomeini was this revolutionary figure to them that could facilitate these radical changes in their fortunes. And the Khomeini worldview, it's kind of commie sounding. It's kind of has this like this. Um, it sounds like to to the modern day, like it would come out of like a a school, like a you know, out of out of like some um, some Marxist Leninist like school. Yeah, some Marxist Leninist <laughs> Leninist yeah. Leninist 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 class. Um, <laughs> basically, what they do it it divides the world into two groups: the oppressors and then the oppressed. Right. And I'm not going to pronounce the the, the Persian word yeah. for this. <laughs> Yeah. So the Islamic revolutionaries, um, their their big, their big, um, that who they saw as the ultimate enemy was the great Satan. Really, is is the Western power, specifically the U.S. and their their sock puppet, right? Puppet, their sock puppet governments like uh, or or dictators like the Shah. Don't forget the lesser yeah, Satan, though. That would be the Soviet yeah, well, Union. Well, they saw them as exploiters, <laughs> right? And in this way, the Islamic Revolution was not just a political change, but also a rejection of of, uh, of Western influence. Because again, in the context, you know, something we, we didn't even bring up, but we've talked about this so many times, is that the Iranian Revolution was also was ultimately a backlash from from the United States and the British. I mean, the United States due to British oil interest in Cold War politics uh, overthrew, you know, did a coup on, um, basically they did a color revolution in Iran where they, they hired a bunch of, they instigated a bunch of street protests through coercion and money uh, to, to overthrow their democratically elected government, Mohammed Mossadegh. And they installed the Shah in power, who was the son of a previous un- unpopular king. So it's one of the reasons why there is this this um, anti-American theme to it. It's because of the history of, of 1953 when, when the U.S. overthrew the, the, their government. But um, where was I getting at right here? So... This philosophy, it influences, obviously, Hezbollah's ideology, which is very much looks through the world in that oppressor-oppressed framework. Hezbollah, which, you know, inspired by Khomeini, it, it, um, you know, it opposes things like economic and political domination by, by not only the, the, um, the U.S., but also, obviously, this, they oppose the Soviet Union along with the Israelis. You know, they rejected both capitalism and then also the the atheist communism. So, seeing, but they saw the U.S. as the primary source of their oppression. You know, through through the U.S.'s backing of their of their sock puppet sock puppet. Man, I'm having a horrible time saying things today. Sock puppets. I need to say that three times. Their sock puppet governments and also their their uh, relationship with Israel. So um, Hezbollah becomes this vanguard movement for impoverished Shia, um, in their mind, protecting themselves from colonizers. 
And these vanguard movements, they, you know, they need their charismatic leaders. You know, that's why they, they embrace, embrace comedian the Islamic revolution. So let's pull this back to, to Lebanon's geopolitical environment in the seventies and eighties. All right, I'll take this. Um, so in the seventies and eighties, like during Israelis occupation of South Lebanon, which we'll cover in greater detail later, Khomeini, he supported the Lebanese Shia by helping them form the resistant movement that we now know as Hezbollah. And not only did he provide the ideological guidance uh, and the religious guidance, but he also supplied weapons and training to these militias. And his leadership and revolutionary ideas strongly resonated with those Lebanese Shia, especially due to their experiences with the Israeli invasions and with the Lebanese government's failure to provide security for its own people. And so Khomeini's intent to, quote, export the revolution basically led Iran to spread this ideology throughout all of the Shiite centers, including Lebanon. And this was backed up with Hezbollah's, you know, open letter that they wrote in 1985, which explicitly acknowledges Khomeini's authority. But, you know, I think what's also super important in this picture outside of just Khomeini is, is just the Palestinian angle for this um, backstory for Hezbollah, which I, which I also find pretty interesting. I think most people that would follow the news today could be forgiven for thinking that Hezbollah and you know Hamas or or the greater Palestinian cause were always super close, given how much you know Hezbollah appears to be supporting Hamas today amid the war in Gaza. Uh, but that's actually not the case when you look at the history. Um, the actual history is much more tenuous, and it makes the current context much much more complicated. So, to try and unpack that as best as we can, um, after the 1948 Arab-Israeli War and the establishment of Israel, there's over 100,000 Palestinians that fled to South Lebanon, effectively becoming refugees. And this influx basically ends up destabilizing the already fragile balance in Lebanon, which, you know, was a nation at the time where, you know, uh, it had granted political dominance to a Christian minority group. And the Lebanese were divided on their views on Israel. For example, the Marianites generally saw Israel's creation positively, uh, while the Muslim majority perceived it as a threat. And the Palestinian refugees' presence further strained those relationships within Lebanon, which led to heightened sectarian tensions by 1958 and, and basically bringing Lebanon on the verge to you know, a much greater civil war. Uh, in in fifty eight, the the rise of uh, pan Arabism led by uh, Egypt's Gamal Abdel Nasser, uh, it basically influenced the Arab world, which culminated in the formation of the United Arab Republic or the UAR, uh, which was between Egypt and Syria. We've talked about this a bunch in other episodes, so I won't go too deep into that. But basically, the Lebanese president at the time, Camille uh, Shamoun, who was again the Marianite Christian. He was a little bit apprehensive about this union, the creation of the UAR, because many Lebanese Muslims supported Nasser's socialist and pan-Arab ideologies and also favored Lebanon's potential inclusion in the UAR. And that inclusion, the idea of becoming part of the UAR, threatened to diminish the status of the Christians who were the minority in Lebanon who also happened to have power. And the assassination of a, of a particular journalist uh, in 1958 sparked a crisis, uh, which was known as the Revolt of the Pashas. This led to an alliance of leftist 
political leaders from the Sunni, the Druze, the Shia, and even some Christian factions uh, to go against the Shamoon regime. And, you know, it saw sporadic fighting, you know, uh, and it almost ended in a victory for the opposition forces uh, near Beirut in June. But, interestingly, Shamoon invoked the Eisenhower Doctrine, which is, of course, a U.S. policy that offers economic or military aid to, to any states that were being threatened by communism. And here's how he got it pulled off. So the UAR at the time were receiving Soviet assistance, which led that credibility to Shamoon invoking the Eisenhower Doctrine. And pretty soon after, U.S. Marines landed in Beirut to suppress the uprising and prevented Lebanon's inclusion in the UAR. And that crisis basically increased the fragility of, of Lebanon's minority Christian-led government, you know, in, because it has a very diverse population that it had to manage, of which it happened to be a minority. And the growing permanent Palestinian population in Lebanon, to come back to the Palestinian thing, you know, it further destabilized what was already a pretty precarious situation, and that contributed to the outbreak of an even bigger civil war in 1975. And so before we talk about the 1975 civil war, I think it's super important to talk about the Fayadeen situation. So um, I'll explain what that is. So in on June 1st, 1965, there was a palatine Palatant. <laughs> I think I'm catching whatever you got, Henry. <laughs> it, it's late. <laughs> I'm leaving this in. Uh, okay, a Palestinian militant group called the Fayadeen launched their first attack on Israel from the Lebanese territory, which signaled the beginning of a, a bunch of cross-border operations into Israel. And these activities contributed to the outbreak of the 67 six-day war, which ended with Israel occupying several other Arab nations. Now, this defeat, it really impacted the Arab world and undermined the appeal of pan-Arabism that was being peddled by, uh, you know, Nasser. And despite this setback, though, the Palestinian resistance continued fighting, with a lot of these Fayadine fighters relocating to southern Lebanon again, joining the already substantial number of Palestinian refugees that were already there. And so the weak Lebanese government and, and small army were basically unable to control this influx of, of uh, you know, refugees and militia fighters. And so, you know, Palestinians kept up their fight and, you know, they did it from Jordan, including those targeting Israeli forces. And that strained relationships between the PLO and, and Jordan's King Hussein, um, you know, there was efforts to curtail these operations, of course, but the PLO's presence grew and it led to the 1970 Black September events in Jordan, after which many Palestinians fred- fled from Jordan to, again, South Lebanon. So there's just this a lot of shit happening where, you know, um, uh, one, one, one battle will happen and then Palestinians will get kicked out of wherever they are and then now they're ending up in southern Lebanon, which is already housing a whole lot of refugees in the first place. So basically, event after event occurred where these militant groups were hit Israel from across a neighboring border, caused trouble for those states, and then they get kicked out. And, you know, it's just a whole lot of militants ending up in south Lebanon at the time. And so the PLO establishes a pretty significant base in south Lebanon, and they effectively created like a state within a state and launched further attacks against Israel, and these actions provoked 
obviously, uh, Israeli retaliatory strikes, and this escalated tensions within Lebanon. So Christians on the one side were fearing a repeat of the 1958 crisis, so they formed their own militias to protect their interests, and that led to fights with between the Christian militias and the Palestinian Fayyadin groups. Then there was election-related violence in 1972, where uh, the Israeli responses to these Palestinian Palestin- I did it again, Palestinian. <laughs> Palestinians, <laughs> aren't you? So you're half Palestinian. <laughs> Palpatinian. <laughs> Palestinian. Uh, okay, so election-related violence in 1972. Uh, you know these these Israeli responses um, to these attacks included a significant raid in Beirut in 1973, and also continuous fading activities. Uh, basically, led to martial law. In, in Lebanon, and the PLO's attacks on Israeli towns in 1974, and of course the subsequent retaliatory strikes by Israel, uh, further strained that situation. And um, basically, it got so bad that, that the Lebanese government had to appeal to the UN Security Council, and the, the period saw a very large and growing discontent among the Lebanese, particularly the Shia uh, in the south and, and the politically dominant Christians as these tensions escalated towards basically the outbreak of of the Lebanese Civil War, the big one. When the Lebanese Civil War started, the Israelis, they intensified their, their, um, you know, their targeting of PLO camps in, in Lebanon. And, uh, you know, Beirut virtually had no control over the South. They had virtually no centralized government or they did have since they did have centralized government, but they didn't have any control over the rural areas. So the PLO could do these staging attacks and these Israeli responses. They killed a lot of people. So Yitzhak Rabin, who was the prime minister at the time, he had at least some foresight to understand that they were causing problems or this was going to cause problems within those communities. So they had something called the good fence policy, which was um, enacted in the 76, I think. And basically the approach was to, you know, to deliver aid to high risk zones and things like that. Um, essentially to, to garner up support mostly from like Christian militias to fight against the PLO. Um, also they wanted to, they, they wanted to, you know, create allies as a bulwark against the Syrian uh, against Syria, because Syria also had a presence in Lebanon. Um, so Israel, they created this alliance with these Christian militias in southern Lebanon. Um, Menachem Begin, he would, he would um, you know, famously say that it was the moral duty of Israel to help with the Lebanese Christians. And, um, you know, despite these efforts, there was really nothing they, they could do to stop these PLO attacks. So what they did is that they try to make a partnership with the Shia. And that sounds so foreign because the Israelis and the Shia are at a constant loggerheads. But uh, in the 70s, their policy was actually to ally with the Shia, with the Shia groups uh, to, to fight the PLO on their behalf. However, you know, this, this didn't work. <laughs> no, no, it didn't. Um, let's maybe come back to Khomeini and his, and his good friend Al Seder, because I think it's a, it's a, it's a good segue. Um, so Al Seder, as, as we know, is, is 
was a prominent figure in the, in the Lebanese southern Lebanese Shia uh, communities, and and he adopted this kind of strategic approach during the Lebanese civil war to protect the Shia community. Now, al-Sadr's um, policy towards the PLO was super complicated. He supported their cause, kind of, but also he criticized them because their actions were obviously endangering Lebanese and specifically the Shia, um, particularly because of the Israeli reprisals that would happen after the PLO would, you know, launch an attack. And al-Sadr was, was critical of, of the PLO's military tactic in South Lebanon, which he saw as pretty much like reckless and detrimental to, to the Shia interests. And it became this kind of growing divide between al-Sadr and, and the Palestinians. And that was further deepened by the PLO's secular political aims. Like keep in mind, at the time, the PLO was really wasn't a religious group. It was just a, a, a militant, you know, uh, uh, ethnic group, uh, which clashed with, you know, basically al-Sadr's vision of a sectarian Lebanese government. Um, so these tensions peak uh, just before al-Sadr mysteriously disappears uh, in 1978. And just before he disappears, he, he ends up strongly condemning the PLO. But I got to talk about this disappearance because it's really wild. Uh, it's kind of like hard not to talk about. Um, apparently on... on August 25th, 1978, al-Sadr, along with, with uh, uh, two other guys, Sheikh Mohammed Yaqub and uh, a journalist by the name of um, Abbas Badrin, they all traveled to Libya to meet with uh, Libyan officials uh, because they were invited by Muammar Gaddafi. And since then, nobody really knows what happened to al-Sadr. It's like total mystery guy just up and disappeared and there's a ton of theories even some conspiracy theories that have come out about this guy's disappearance and it's pretty important because like this is like one of lebanon's biggest shia leaders at the time and he just poof disappears in libya now a bunch of lebanese shia muslims think it was gaddafi they think gaddafi orchestrated his murder uh, Libya, of course, denies this, and they say that, you know, al-Sadr, he left for Italy. Um, but there's a lot of evidence that seems to contradict this, including the fact that they have an unconfirmed airline record. Which basically, is, The airline basically says he never got on a plane, and al-Sadr's luggage was found in a hotel in Tripoli. So, you know, he went to, he went to Italy without his luggage? Probably not. Now, al-Sadr's son thinks that his father might still be or he's probably dead by now if he was, but was just secretly imprisoned in Libya, you know? Um, But there's a lot of evidence against that too, because Libya has has risen and fallen a bunch of times since then. So, you know, we would have found that part out. Um, Iranian general Mansour Qadar, he thinks that Gaddafi wanted him dead. And he, he says he got this information from Syrian intelligence. Um, there's this uh, a Libyan group called the Libyan National Transitional Council after Gaddafi uh, fell, and uh, their representative uh, alleged that Gaddafi murdered al-Sadr after they had like a theological disagreement. Um, and then an even different one, a, th- a different theory says that the Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat um, asked Gaddafi to kill al-Sadr because 
of the Shia-Palestinian conflicts that were happening in southern Lebanon. And an even crazier one says that Ayatollah Khomeini asked Gaddafi to kill him because he saw Assad as a rival and wanted more influence in southern Lebanon. I don't know. Some of these seem plausible. Some of them totally bullshit. But no matter which you choose to believe, the truth is still kind of unknown. And I don't know. Personally, I'm in the camp of Gaddafi. Definitely killed him, but I'm just not entirely sure why. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I found that to be an interesting story. What do you think? <laughs> I I don't know. It's it's tough. It could be anyone. It sounds like a lot of people wanted them dead. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's like akin to like I don't know, like if Trump just disappears one day <laughs> and nobody figures out why. And Trump is like this super popular, you know, MAGA or Republican. It's like know. who killed Jeffrey yeah. Epstein. There's so many people who wanted them dead. How how could you? Even... How could you? How exactly? Who do you pin it on? You know, it's wild. But um, yeah. Let's so just back to the main story. So um, 1977, the situation in South Lebanon is is bad, and. Uh, you know, it's the end of the Civil War in 1977, but there's still skirmishes between the PLO and and, and these Christian militias, um, along with PLO attacks on Israeli targets. And, uh, you know, South Lebanon was, was in ruins in a lot of places. However, at that time the Shia population still blamed the PLO for a lot of, a lot of the, the carnage. Um, you know, there were some Shia militias that had welcomed Israeli, Israeli, um, intervention just because they were so fed up with the PLO. But, um, by 1978 with the situation, showing no signs of improvement that's when the israelis launched a full-scale military intervention in, in south lebanon known as as the latani operation at the the latani river yeah i mean that, that's super interesting especially in the modern context dude because it... did you hear that what was that like a gunfire robber it was like gunfire oh that was gun <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah, I wonder if that got caught. All right, what was I saying? I, I think it's... They just shoot guns up in the air. Yes, yeah, celebratory fundraising gunfire. Right? <laughs> um, so I was saying that, that it's interesting that the relationship was so tenuous between Shias in Lebanon and the PLO. I mean, it makes sense, right? Like when you know the history and, you know, if, if you've got this group of people that, you know... I mean, they're not Lebanese. Let's put it that way, right? They're Palestinian. And, you know, please don't chew me out in the comment section of YouTube somewhere telling me that Palestinians don't exist because they're just different people, okay? <laughs> um, so they're different people. They, they end up in Lebanon, and they're, they're fighting a, a, a fight against, you know, a more powerful adversary in Israel. And, like, they're doing it from your country, your home turf. And, you know obviously Israel's going to hit them back, right? And it's going to cause a bunch of collateral damage uh, for people that had nothing to do with it. And yeah, that's going to, that's, I mean, that would piss anybody off. Um, 
but it's so interesting to see how, how much that has changed over the years, especially today and how much, you know, groups like Hezbollah are, are, are actively supporting, um, the Palestinian cause. But, um, and I think it's, I think it's like probably a good time for us to talk about the final piece of this puzzle, which I think is the, you know, Israeli involvement in the backstory for Hezbollah. And, and I don't think that this part would be particularly surprising when you consider the, you know, that, that modern context of why Hezbollah hates Israel, but it's also just important to know the history to help piece together that puzzle. So you're talking about the Latani operation. Um, and I think that's a good, good spot to start, you know, end of 77, like you said, South Lebanon, full of a bunch of conflicts between those Palestinian Fayyadeen, between Israel and between all the Christian militias uh, in Lebanon. And with the Lebanese army's limited capacity, and of course the president's reluctance to deploy like actual Lebanese forces, Israel just got impatient uh, with the Lebanese government because they're frankly unable to manage that situation whatsoever. And to make things worse, the Christian militias started to lose to the Fayedeen. Um, so, you know, the, the, the partners in crime, so to speak, uh, of Israel here, they weren't doing so well. So in 78, uh, 11 Palestinian Fayedeen, they hijacked two buses near Tel Aviv, which resulted in the deaths of 37 Israelis and injured 76. Huge attack probably know a lot about it if you've been studying um you know the the history between the the palestinians and the israeli conflict but this attack was praised by some palestinian and lebanese leaders which you know highlighted the ongoing tension and conflict in a region um Manikim begin the prime minister his response was obviously severe uh and he likened the plo to nazis and you know emphasized that they were a threat to Israeli civilians. And, and this became a major turning point, uh, which led to, you know, the Israeli decision to launch the Litani operation in, in 1978. Now, this operation was a comprehensive military invasion, and it, and it was, you know, aimed at, at pushing the Fayedin north of that, that river, the Litani River, after which it's named. And and it involved a, a significant number of troops and a whole lot of artillery and naval support as well. And its objective was to eliminate a bunch of terrorist bases near the Israeli border and to specifically target PLO strongholds. Now, they also intended to avoid civilian casualties and not engage with the Lebanese army or any of the inter-Arab forces and only fo focus on these terrorist groups that they had identified. Um... But, you know, despite claiming that, you know, the operation was only temporary, the Israeli government faced a lot of international pressure, uh, especially after the U.S. U.N. Security Council adopted Resolution 425, which called for uh, Israel to withdraw and respect Lebanese territory. Now, the IDF achieved its primary goal quickly of, of taking out a lot of the terrorist uh, infrastructure and the Israeli general, um, Mordecai Gur, suggested that they establish a security buffer along the border with Lebanon and Israel. Now, that obviously goes against the UN Security Council's um, resolution to withdraw. So Prime Minister Begin, he had to convince the council that that 
that that buffer zone move was only temporary and it, and he had to emphasize that it's not an occupation but just like a like a measure to prevent future attacks from southern Lebanon. But of course, despite all of these assurances, there is a whole lot of international pressure for withdrawal and then the UN sets up this group this this force called the United Nations Interim Force in Lebanon or un, UNIFIL 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 Oh, how do you say that acronym? UNIFIL. I'm going to go with UNIFIL. Basically, they set these up, these guys up to maintain peace, and Israel r- agrees to withdraw under very specific conditions, including um, UNIFIL patrolling specific areas and and allowing you know these Christian militias to control the zone near the border. <clears throat> but the complete withdrawal of Israeli troops was delayed due to a bunch more Palestinian Fayadeen attacks, and it wasn't until June 13th of that year that the Israeli forces fully exited the Lebanese territory. Now, during this occupation, the Lebanese Shia community's reaction was, again, super mixed. Some of them expressed anger towards Israel. Others blamed Palestinians for inciting the Israeli attacks in the first place. Al-Sadr, our guy who disappears... He, you know, ends up criticizing the occupation for disregarding Lebanese sovereignty, uh, and he emphasized the danger of a power vacuum in the south. Some Shia uh, even joined forces with Christian militias at this point against fighting, you know, the Palestinian Fayadeen, which showed kind of like that shift in attitude towards the PLO. But, um, you know, again, Israel's making their efforts to 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 make ties with the Shia in southern Lebanon. And it's seen as this strategic move to build like infrastructure without affecting their alliances with the Christians. Um, but even though it was criticized by some people like al-Sadr, um, there was a shift in the Shia community during the Litani operation. And between that operation and the next operation that they do, Operation Peace for Galilee, Israel tried to secure the border, you know, through these militias. But Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. Yeah, basically, the, the Lebanese government starts to put on their big boy pants and try to assert the presidents, assert their presence in the South, which which made everything much much more complicated. Um, it, this is all to say that that all of these operations to try and get rid of the PLO from southern Lebanon led to significant casualties and tensions. Um, basically, Israel ramped up its raids. They established portions in the border area controlled by the newly formed Free Lebanon Army. And these Israeli actions were perceived as efforts 
to you know prevent Palestinian infiltration, but it also, you know, it led to substantial uh, destruction and, and territorial control in, in southern Lebanon. Um, Begin he basically tried to distance himself from a lot of these uh, uh, groups that started popping up, like the Free Lebanon Army, um, and in 1981, the FLA forces decided to shell a Lebanese army troop in Kantara in Lebanon, which was absolutely nuts. It was kind of like, you know, Lebanese on Lebanese uh, uh, started to feel like another uh, civil war again. And it was starting to make Israel look bad because these were the, the folks that they were trying to set up uh, uh, better relationships with. Uh, obviously, the prime minister tries to distance themselves from those actions, but there was already a whole lot of criticism and, and, and finger pointing at Israel uh, for making this uh, situation come to be. Finally, in 1981, under a lot of international pressure, Israel and the PLO announced a bilateral ceasefire. But like a lot of these ceasefires, this one was short-lived as you know a rocket attack happened uh, that was launched by the, the Fayedin quickly, basically started up that fight again. Okay. We'll talk about one more operation because I think this one kind of this one was hotter uh, and had I think broader impacts on uh, Lebanon than than even the Latani operation. So this one was called the Operation Peace for Galilee in 1982, um, and it, it it just had a devastating impact on on South Lebanon's economy. The damages were estimated at 7.5 billion Lebanese pounds, which is like 1.9 billion U.S. dollars, uh, which was nearly a third of Lebanon's gross gross national product. Now, the sectors that were most affected by this operation were agriculture, industry, and housing, predominantly in Beirut and southern Lebanon. Now, the agricultural sector, which accounted for about 40% of South Lebanon's revenue saw a huge reduction in production and, and, and also employment. The output dropped to about 70% capacity um, and it had significant decline in, in exports um, along with rising production costs. All this is to say that, that a bunch of people started suffering. Housing suffered heavily, um, not for economic reasons, but because thousands of units were damaged or destroyed altogether, um, which I imagine is, is already the case in Gaza today. Uh, in an attempt to basically try and integrate Lebanon's economy with Israel's, the IDF implemented these policies that essentially decimated what was left of that agricultural sector in southern Lebanon, and they started flooding the market with Israeli goods. Uh, the Israeli forces then destroyed farms and plantations, uh, which significantly harmed local agriculture. Um, also, they started introducing a lot of cheap Israeli products, which uh, undermined the local economy, which also affected one of their biggest cash crops, which were bananas. It's a staple crop in Lebanon. And so the International Commission noted that a lot of these policies uh, were aimed to make the Lebanese consumer dependent on Israeli agriculture. Uh, which looking back on it kind of feels true. A lot of these Lebanese farmers protested against the influx of these Israeli products, which forced them to either abandon their crops or sell at a loss. Um, and to add insult to injury, the Arab world 
at large was concerned about inadvertently importing Israeli goods through Lebanon, which led to bans on Lebanese products. So they couldn't sell it to any, they couldn't sell their own products to any of the other Arab nations around them. And this made the economic woes of the South Lebanon even worse. Now, some more nefarious things that came out of this was Israel sought to basically establish a financial relationship with South Lebanon. They negotiated with the National Bank of Lebanon to open up Israeli bank branches in the occupied territory, which by itself isn't so bad. But, you know, these economic policies ended up disrupting the local economy and it, it felt like it was turning it into just a satellite economy for Israel. And they did a lot of economic manipulation. And they also used auxiliary forces and mistreated a lot of the civilians, the IDF did. And you know, all of this contributes to a whole lot of financial insecurity and, and just straight up, you know, anger uh, in the occupied South Lebanon. I mean, after the invasion in 1982, their, their collaboration with a bunch of different Lebanese militia, in particular, the ones connected to the Marianite and Orthodox Christian communities grew pretty widely. And this alliance, you know, it, it had severe consequences. Uh, in this one case, uh, the Sabra and Shatila refugee camps, these uh, phalangists, which were uh, um, basically like Orthodox um, a Christian group, uh, they massacred over a thousand Lebanese and Palestinians in these two refugee camps, and a lot of a lot of people saw what they believed to be indirect Israeli involvements. These witnesses indicated that while Israeli soldiers weren't there, that they did let the phalangists get into the camps, and they also failed to intervene, so they had some responsibility. Um, this. Uh, was a pretty big deal in the time. And I know that we live in a, a day and age where we see, you know, 4K video of people getting killed all the time. So we might be a little bit desensitized to it. But when the news broke about this in particular, like the, the world was kind of disgusted by it. And, you know, it it caused a lot of of issues for Israel. And obviously they they vehemently denied it, denied any blame for the for the issue, but you know, uh that kind of argument didn't do a whole lot to help them uh, kind of reduce international fears of, of more atrocities under Israeli occupation. And so in the 80s, the 80s, you know, it's just something to point out. 70s, 80s, the Israelis didn't have the same lobbying power that they do now right. that they had in the 80s. Like it's just... It's been basically Israeli lobbying part, power started in like after the Six Day War um, to what it is now, which is probably at its peak. Or it was at its peak, basically still at its peak from after the Iraq War. Um, but in the 80s, there, there, there actually was real condemnation. And politicians in Israel, if they were caught in a... Like, you know, if there is, there's been some refugee camps that have been bombed in Gaza. Um, if the same thing happened in the 80s, probably Netanyahu would, Netanyahu would have to resign because of yeah, that. Yeah, very likely. It was a different time. Like, you know, Sharon and, Sharon and, and Menachem Begin are forced to resign over, over 
a lot of these scandals. But, you know, there was some real Machiavellian things that were, were going on covertly uh, between, you know, Israeli intelligence and these um, Marianite Orthodox militias. Like, you know, there's, I'm not an expert on all of them, but I know there's like, you know, there was like car bombing campaigns and just like crazy shit like that. Yeah. And, and the whole reason, you know, for, for the blowback for Israel is because they had this strategy of establishing, you know, these Lebanese militias because they thought of it as like a tactic to, you know, kind of swap for direct occupation, right? Like instead of Israeli soldiers doing the occupation, if they just set up these relationships with these militias, then they can get it done. But, you know, sometimes those militias acted independently, you know, just to give Israel some credit here. And, you know, they, these groups were responsible for a range of crazy things. Like you said, you know, they, they, they killed people, they harassed people, they seized property. There was kidnappings, assassinations, and just straight up massacres. Um, and, and their actions, despite sometimes being self-driven and totally, you know, without, you know, the direction of Israel, they were still largely perceived as being under Israeli direction, right? Because they were the bigger partner in this, in this, um, in this region. And, and it contributed significantly to the growth of a lot of resistance movements in southern Lebanon, which were obviously aimed at ending Israeli occupation and influence. And so the treatment of Lebanese civilians by the IDF during this particular operation, Operation for Peace for Galilee, in 1982, played a big role in the emergence of Shiite resistance. So remember, initially, many of the Lebanese welcomed the IDF because they saw it as a solution to the Palestinian presence and the Palestinian issue. But with the IDF's approach to treating the entire South Lebanese populations as basically collaborators with the PLO, that leads to widespread resentment and hostility. Um, you know, they they didn't do some great things. I mean, like, I can go on for a very long time about some of the things I've read about this, but I'm, I'm going to skip it because, you know, it's late and also I don't want to beat a dead horse here. They did some not great things. Um, and it, it was cause for concern and it created, it created issues in the south of Lebanon. Um, so skipping ahead a little bit, during the Israeli occupation in 1982, that, that Shiite Lebanese uh, resistance became a thing. And, and that's because, you know, the, the situation for all of the Shiite Lebanese civilians was totally uncertain. You know, the, this environment didn't stop them from resisting occupation, though, uh, especially towards the end of 1983. Um, during uh, an Asherah celebration in 1983, uh, the IDF basically opens fire on a, on a crowd, um, and this led to a violent crash between the IDF and um, a bunch of Lebanese people. And in response, the IDF imposes this curfew, detains like 300 locals, including 60 women, and this was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for a lot of people. The resistance intensified after this, uh, with many considering the Israeli occupation worse than the Palestinian presence that was causing the Israelis to strike back, primarily because the IDF was just abusive in this case. Yeah, so this is 
pretty much how we got Hezbollah. And I think it's it's worth us taking a second just to just to recap what it is that we learned today. So, Iran, they had a founder. His name is Khomeini, and he ends up being close uh, with the Shiite militias in southern Lebanon. And those Shiite militias, like Hezbollah, resonate with Khomeini's anti-Western worldview. And eventually, they come to accept him as their, like, spiritual leader. And this all becomes possible thanks to the former Iranian Shah exiling Khomeini and, of course, the uh, revolution there. Then there was multiple wars and skirmishes between the Palestinian groups and Israelis, and that creates a massive displacement of Palestinians, including militants, who end up in South Lebanon in massive numbers. And the Palestinian cross-border struggle against the Israel uh, creates basically massive repercussions and, and casualties on southern Lebanese communities. And it obviously makes a whole lot of animosity towards the Palestinians, but also the Israelis, which leads us to the third point, which is there were multiple operations and occupations that were carried out by the Israelis on South Lebanon in order to crush the Palestinians, as well as to, you know, control the situation militarily and financially in Lebanon. And all of these things puts Lebanese Shiite communities over the edge, such that they form these militias like Hezbollah, which are themselves supported by Iran, and then we can go back to Iran. <laughs> so it's a big circle. It is the definition of blowback. Yep. There's a lot of blowback when you uh, when you intervene into another country. So that's ultimately the lesson. Um, you know, the the Shia originally welcomed the IDF. They turned on them because the IDF occupation and bombing campaigns were bad. You know, Ronald Reagan had called uh, Benakam Begin during one of the bombing campaigns, and he said that the image of this war is becoming... He said, you're, he said, you're committing another Holocaust, and he said he used those words deliberately, and he said the image of this war is becoming a little girl with her, uh, with her arms blown off. And, and Ronald Reagan said... It's rough. After the call, he was like, I didn't know I could do that. It's <laughs> <laughs> crazy. Like, I didn't know I was, I was able to do that. And then the, the bombing stopped that day. But it was like... Um, it was more than just the, the strong words, too. They also like threatened to not deliver fighter jets to Israel either. So they kind of had to play. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> but um, it's good context for what's going on today. Not only the current conflict, but also the... Um, understanding the backstory of of these groups that unfortunately we're probably going to hear more about i think this is a good place to wrap this up yeah i agree <laughs> all right guys thanks for listening to another episode of bro history if you want to support the show rate and review the podcast it is the number one way to support our show so if you're listening on apple just go to the stars put five stars if you're listening on spotify follow Rate, rate the podcast, number one way to support this show. Uh, you can also, Jane, Jane, man, I got to take speech therapy again. You can also join our Patreon, get access to our Slack. Um, so join, and we'll see you there. Anything else? Nope. All right, guys, peace. Peace. <laughs>